Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground. Alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio. Speaking truth to power and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me, Negro. That's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? As you honor our forefathers and foremothers, I urge you to honor our living heroes. When you honor the names of Nat Turner, Harriet Tubman, and Malcolm X, I urge you to honor the names of Geronimo Gijaga, Sundiata Akoli, Matulu Shakur, and Mumia Abu-Jamal. America's chickens are coming home to roost. Violence begets violence. Hatred begets hatred. And terrorism begets terrorism. Our common ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Thank you for being with us. Stay tuned. And soldiers for our state and she 
she'll be with us tonight. Opening the file of the Black Power Movement, the Civil Rights Movement, and the Life of Struggle of a Sister. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. is our common ground, broadcasting bold, brave, and black, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Stay tuned. Good evening, and thank you for being with us here at Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham, and it's Saturday, and where do righteous black people belong if they belong here at Our Common Ground? So good to have you, and so good for those of you who are in the Our Common Ground chat room tonight. And if you're listening and you'd like to join our chatters in a live discussion of what goes on on this broadcast you can come to blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. Tonight at Our Common Ground, it is our first installment of our feature, Witnesses from the Bridge, looking at those who came because they heard the clarion call of a black people in struggle. And tonight, our guest is Florence Tate. She was a witness on the bridge, and she witnesses now from the bridge. She's a civil rights activist, journalist, and she was on the FBI's most wanted list, and she was the most wanted press secretary in the country. Tonight, she's going to recount that life from days in Jim Crow South to the 1984 Jesse Jackson presidential bid that she is building in her new memoir, The Most Wanted, the FBI's Most Wanted Press Secretary. This former civil rights activist, Dayton Daily News reporter, and press secretary for the historic 1984 Jesse Jackson presidential campaign, has lived through seven decades of American epoch. And now, she's writing about her impressive experience and achievements. The FBI's most wanted press secretary opening up her files on civil rights, the black power movement, and black partisan politics. She came when our country was experiencing a sense of need and struggle realizing the fruits of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s work, evidenced by the election of the first African-American president 
large state feels instead that the racial up unease and tension revealed by events like the current drama surrounding the George Zimmerman Trayvon Martin case signify America still has a long way to go in race relations. We'll be talking with her about her thoughts about today's race relations in America and the journey that she took because she heard the call. Thank you again for those of you who are just joining us. You know, black power is a political struggle and a name for a lot of associated ideologies aimed at achieving self-determination for people of African and black descent. The first popular term, use of the term black power as a social and political slogan was by uh, Kwame Touré, who was formerly known at the time as Stokely Carmichael, and Willie Ricks, later known as Mukasa Dada, both organizers and spokespersons for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SIC. And on June 16, 1966, after the shooting of James Meredith, during the march against fear, Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Touré, our now elder ancestor, said these words. This is the 27th time I have been arrested, and I ain't going to jail no more. The only way we're going to stop them white men from whooping us is to take over. What we're going to start saying now is black power. And some black power adherents believed in black autonomy with a variety of tendencies, such as black nationalism and black separatism. And these positions were, for the most part, in direct conflict with those leaders of the mainstream civil rights movement. And thus, the two movements have often been viewed as inherently antagonistic. However, certain groups and individuals participated in both, and our guest tonight was one of those people. Sister Elder Warrior Florence Tate, thank you for joining us and bringing your wisdom and insight on our common ground. Thank you for being with us. Sister Tate, are you there? Yes, I'm here, Janice. I didn't know I was on. <laughs> thank you so much. I mean, over the last week, I have simply uh, inundated myself with information about you and the work that you have done in the past. And let me tell you, on behalf of my ancestors, my children, my grandchildren, and the future that they see, thank you so very much from the very bottom of our hearts for the work that you put in. Oh, thank you, Janice. You're very kind. Well, let's start off by, uh, tell us about what your childhood was like in Dayton, Ohio, and how you first got the spark for the struggle. Uh, First of all, uh, my uh, childhood was in Memphis, Tennessee. I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, and came to Dayton as an adult. Um, my childhood, actually, I was born in a little town uh, about 30 miles 
south of Memphis, or Eads, Tennessee. It's a small uh, rural community with maybe 100 people, I don't know. Um, and I, grew, I lived there until I was eight years old on the farm with my great-aunt, who was like a grandmother, and my great-uncle. And um, uh, it was just country living with, with you know, all that that uh, entails. It was a farm, farm life with the animals and the cotton and, you know, it was it was just country, and um, that my earliest uh, memories, of course, are from that time, from from growing up in Eats. Uh huh. What kind of farm was it? Uh it was well, it was a home farm, but my uh, uncle grew cotton, and uh, he had you know cotton. He had an, an uh, a farm away from the house. It was a, a cotton field, and uh, he planted and uh, you know picked and and ginned and sold the cotton. So that that was uh, a way of life for you know for him and uh, Mama Annie. Uh, mm-hmm. The farm with the with the chickens and pigs and cows and all the things that you know go along uh-huh. with farm life. That's uh-huh. uh, that's what I was um, born into. Uh-huh. And 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 what was going on in Memphis at the time that you got into your teen years to grab your attention to what was happening nationally uh in terms of both race relations and reflections on the Jim Crow era that you were growing up in? Uh growing up in Memphis was as you say it was Jim Crow segregation Police brutality, all of all of the things that we associate with, um, you know, with the with the pre civil rights days. Uh, that's what it was like, and, and Memphis was like pretty much any other southern town or city that you you know know anything about. And um, it was just I was just subjected to all of that. But at the time, you didn't. It was just a way of life. You just didn't think about it being any other kind of way. Uh, uh, needing to be any other kind of way, you were aware that um, there were uh, uh, forces against you, but you um, did not spend your time thinking about that. You were just going mm-hmm. on, uh, going about your life, doing what you were doing, going to school or going to work or going to play or whatever. And uh, and um, as children, we were really. Um, cocooned in a way uh in the in the black community which was entirely you know segregated and mm-hmm. we had our own everything your your church your school your, your everything was black and um mm-hmm. uh it was only when you had to confront the the uh the uh white society did you was there any any uh friction that it was uh uh, that you had to deal with, you know, it, it uh-huh. was uh, uh, mainly um, it, it the segregation was in a, had its own. Now it had, you know, it was very detrimental in other ways, but it had its own benefits because you were you were uh, in a loving community where you were um, um, protected in a, in a certain kind of way. Yeah. And, uh, I grew up in the same kind of community. Okay. Then, then uh, well, you know. we had our own doctors. We had our own dentists. We had Your our own, own everything. Mm-hmm. Everything. 
Uh, as a matter of fact, I was going to ask you about if you had any impression about the first time that you really had uh, upfront personal kind of interaction with white people because I was seven years old the first time I ever touched a white person. And at seven years old, I went home, and for days I was thinking about it and thinking whether or not this little boy was a a ghost because you could (laughs) see the light through his... I I mean, for for days I really thought about it. You could see the light through his ears, and I couldn't figure out how could that be. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Well, um, my first memory of even being aware that there were black and whites and uh the distinctions um what i i remember being and it was it was connected with a very horrible incident that that uh will never leave my memory and whenever i think about anything about my childhood i think about this uh as a beginning sort i remember being maybe 3 or 4 years old in the country sitting around the fireplace as we did in in the evening before going to bed and my father who was a, a teacher um, I, I say that he was a teacher because he was the one who read the paper and people, you know, uh, looked to him for advice about this, that, and the other to uh, call him Professor Grinner. Anyway, we were sitting around the uh, uh, fireplace, and he was reading from the black newspaper, and I know that it was a uh, black newspaper because it, it we only got it uh, ever so often, and it was not the uh, regular newspaper, which was the Memphis mm-hmm. Commercial Appeal, I think. And it was either the Chicago, it was pink, and it was either, now I know looking back, it was either the Chicago the Defender Courier. or the Pittsburgh Courier. Yeah, it was probably yeah, it the was, Pittsburgh the Courier. The Courier was pink. Yeah. Okay, okay, then that's what it was. But And he was reading this this article about the lynching of uh, our cousin, Jesse Lee who uh, I must have known or had heard something about this incident that had happened sometimes back, but it it was did not, of course, make the uh, the regular daily paper. Uh, but it maybe this was some months after, at least some weeks after, and so Daddy was reading this story about what had happened to Jessaline. He had uh, gotten. Um, in an, an argument with the woman at the uh, at the general store where he had gone to pay the bills, he and his mother were sharecroppers. Had gone to pay the bills for the the uh, the summer or the winter, or however however they did it for the the stuff that they had gotten to grow their cotton and so forth, the seeds and fertilizer, whatever. Anyway, he was um, uh, squaring up the the bill, and uh, the woman told him that he owed more than um, than he he thought that he did. And they got into an argument, which was, uh, now looking back, I know it was highly unusual for this teenage boy to contradict this white woman at that time. But anyway, they got into an argument. I think he was like 19. And from one thing to the next, um, there, there was some other young white men in the store and they jumped on him and he ran and they caught him and beat him and uh, uh, tied his body to a uh, truck 
and uh, pickup truck and drove it around in the in the uh, little town there, Arlington, Tennessee. So I know most of this I know in hindsight, but my father was reading this uh, story in the paper, and that paper. yeah, and that way I uh, that was my first knowledge of you know uh, white people do this and black people are that and and um, mm-hmm. uh, of the conflict. You know, and so that was all. That was the earliest memory I have of black, white, and that kind of thing. But there were uh, little white children who lived across the highway from us, and um, I knew uh, knew them to you know from from playing and and that kind of thing. Uh, and but um, uh, one though another incident I remember early on about the black white business. My um, my uh, great uncle, with whom I lived, was a, a barber, and he cut uh, white men's hair in the in the front room where he had a, a barber shop as a part of the house and so forth. And one day, this this a man, uh, a white man, whose hair he was cutting, had his little daughter with him, and we were about uh, four four or five years old. And uh, the little daughter and I were playing in the in the room where Pop Elvin was cutting hair, and um, she pulled my my hair, and I slapped her, and my my um, uh, Pop Elvin dropped his clippers and came over and shook me and said, "Don't you ever hit a white woman." And I mean, yeah, I was a little kid. I didn't know anything about a white woman, and that, but that it, it stood out in my memory, you yeah. know, as mm-hmm. oh yeah, this is this is something different. This is uh, there's some some uh, problem here. Yeah, yeah, so, there's there's something to this. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and 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 when you were, I mean, there was no question that the Pittsburgh Courier was the media that black people all over this country read. It was a weekly newspaper. Exactly. And, and you had to subscribe by mail. And in the community where I lived, um, uh, under uh, the steel of segregation, we had our own newspaper, which was a local, and it was also weekly. And the arrangement was that the Pittsburgh Courier received all of the subscriptions because the downtown uh, post office would hold up the Pittsburgh Courier when it came into small black communities for weeks at a time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the, the the newspaper in my community received the subscriptions, and uh, they weren't individual and and delivered it with their own newspaper, and that's how. In my community, we got the Pittsburgh Courier pretty well. Uh, we, we got the. Um, I, I know you know from, uh, both in Eads and later in Memphis and so forth. The uh, uh, Pittsburgh Courier, Chicago Defender, and I think um, there was another. News. Yeah, the, yeah. We would come across those papers and and just be eager to, to see what was Absolutely. happening among black mm-hmm. people because nothing was printed in the regular. White uh-huh. newspapers, the daily right. newspapers. So any news about what was happening in Black America, any you know, or 
in your own community right. if something had happened. It, note that it mm-hmm. wouldn't, unless it was something criminal or something derogatory, it would never make the uh, the daily exactly. paper. So you exactly. depended on the, the courier and the defender and, and uh, Memphis World as mm-hmm. uh, source, for sources of magazine. news about yourself. Well, Jet, a little later on, yeah. A little, little <laughs> later on. But it really was uh, more uh, punctual news than what you would find in Ebony magazine because Ebony was Oh, monthly. yeah, absolutely, right. Now, mm-hmm. what brought you out of Memphis into the larger world of the, the mounting civil rights movement? Most people don't know, uh, and I'll give you a, a good timeline, that the civil rights movement, uh, which is the freedom struggle by African Americans in the 50s and 60s to gain equality with the goal of being free from discrimination, uh, equal opportunity, employment, education, housing, the right to vote, and equal access to public facilities, was really a movement that mounted in the 1950s but really started in the pre-17th century, but we won't try to go back to that history. But in the 1950s, you began as a young woman to have an awareness of something. You know, as, as the old people say, something in your in your well, bones. You, yeah, you, you were fighting. always aware that, that you were being mistreated that but that was just sort of uh sort of there you you knew that you knew you know that that uh, um uh that uh, you in a certain kind of way you'd live in under terror because you never knew what was going to happen to you 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 knew that any white person of any uh uh the the um whether it was the insurance man the grocery man the laundry man the uh bus driver if he was white, you were subject to his whims as to what, you know, he could do anything and get away with mm-hmm. it. it. It wasn't, um, you know, you had no legal recourse. It, it, it's hard to believe, but that's, uh, that, so so you always had to be on guard when you were out in the larger community. You had to be on guard, uh, you know, to make sure that you didn't offend in any way or that, uh, you know, you didn't cause trouble or get in trouble because the last thing you wanted wanted to do was to have an encounter with what we call the law. Now that was the policeman. So every policeman was the law. Oh, did you see the law? The law is coming. Uh, the law will mm-hmm. get you. And you're referring to the policeman because there, you know, there was no uh, uh, court or anything. It was just what they said was was the law. And uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, that's what you referred to as the law. Did Memphis have a black police force? Not until after, let's see, I was in high school when uh, the when uh, the NAACP had been able to, um, you know, I don't know if it was through agitation, agitating or through legal means, I can't remember uh, how, but we got police, black five black policemen on the force, but they were not allowed to carry guns and were not allowed to arrest white people <laughs> but but yes. it was a, it was a step forward to get them to you know to have them on the police force so i think it was probably when i was a senior in high school which would have been like 1948 when uh, we got the first black policeman in uh, in memphis mhm mhm well uh 
tell us about, share with us, what started happening with you personally and, and at what point in your life that you felt that you needed to somehow make a difference to bring about change? Well, uh, in um, uh, 1952, I think it was, I moved uh, from uh, Memphis to uh, to Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, lived in Cleveland for a couple of years and married my husband. We moved to Dayton, Ohio, and that's where, you know, my, uh, my boys were born and so forth. And um, I'm trying to remember what... <laughs> What you ask me? When did uh, how how you became oh, involved? Oh, and so and so we were living in in um, Dayton. Fast forward, we were living in Dayton, and it was during the time of the um, uh, the integration of the Little Rock uh, uh, School, Little Rock High School, and um, all you know on the television, you would see these little kids going to school, going through this line of. Uh, white people hollering and throwing things and cursing and yelling and and uh just just trying to um frighten these little kids or to keep them from going to school or prevent prevent the school integration and i said uh i remember saying to myself um if if those little kids have the nerve it, to do that and see having been born and lived in the south and lived under segregation and lived under terror it um it it i knew what a brave courageous thing they were doing i said and if these little children these young people can do that there under those conditions then surely there must be something that i should be doing when i don't have the the uh uh immediate danger or threat of of being attacked and that i should uh should do something to to um to help black people achieve uh you know equality freedom liberation whatever you want to call it that but mm-hmm. that that i myself should should be doing something and um and at the time in Dayton, there was uh, core had just formed a, a chapter of core was just formed, and the Congress the, of, uh, Racial, Congress of equality. Racial Equality, and it was head headed by um, a man named W. S. McIntosh, who had been a uh, an old labor leader, A. F. L. C. I. O. labor labor organizer rather. And so he was uh, in the newspaper reporting on his activities. If they were, you know, protesting, picketing or something, then they would uh, uh, bring up all his background. Well, he was a communist and he was a criminal and he was this, that, and the other. And it was all, of course, to to keep people away from him. But it it stuck in my mind that I had my kids were little then, and, and uh, in fact, one was a baby, and there was no way that I could um, could join them at that time. But I felt that as soon as I was able to, the conditions, or you know, when my uh, 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 home conditions made it possible that I could belong to a movement and, and an organization and so forth, I joined uh, Dayton Corps. And that was my first um, organized uh, resistance, let's say. To, were, um, you, were you a, a journalist at the Dayton Daily News at the time? 
I was a journalist. No, not at at that particular not time. Yet. That came uh-huh. that came later. And uh, speaking of being a journalist at the Dayton Daily News, I was. It was a a time when uh, I could be a journalist and at the same time be a civil rights activist. And that was that. Of course, you couldn't do that now. Uh, for the most part, I don't think so. But um, well, I think a it, lot of people are doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're doing it. I guess they're doing it now. But um, uh, at the time, it, it was you know you you uh, uh-huh. the rules of journalism would not permit you to uh, be an, a participant in something that you would, might be reporting on. But in any case, See, now, I this was, is the part that I love about your about your history. You were a just a middle class Dayton, Ohio housewife with three children, mm-hmm. and you joined Core. Right. What? I mean, I love that part <laughs> of the story. <laughs> I mean, I mean, those yeah, are, it was it was lesson. I didn't think of it. It. it at the time, I was just doing what I felt needed to be done that I could do, and so forth. And the um, the uh, fact that other people uh, were not other people that I knew were not doing it did not it just did not affect me. I I was doing what I thought should be done, and it as and now I know it was it was quite different from what my other friends were friends social friends were doing. You know, with the uh, with the alpha wives or the uh, League of Women Voters or uh-huh. those kinds of activities. Deltaties. Um, Right, and and uh, I remember my daughter saying that she was, uh, I made her so proud one day, uh, had to attend something at her school, and the, the the principal was introducing the parents of these children who were being awarded some kind of prize for scholastic activities, and the parents mm-hmm. had to stand up and identify themselves, and, you know, different ones say, well, I'm this so-and-so and so-and-so, mother of so-and-so and so-and-so, and I am uh, a Delta. And uh, another one would say, well, I'm so-and-so and so-and-so, and I am, uh, I belong to do-do-do-do. And uh, they were all, you know, respectable middle-class activities. And uh, and I said, well, I'm the mother of, of Jury, and I am a member of CORE. And of the Congress of Racial Equality and Juridists thought that that was just so grand, really. Well, it is true that during that time, and uh, I have talked to my members of my family who were active in the civil rights movement about how hard it was to talk people in our community into this was the right thing to do, that even people were very reluctant to say publicly that they agreed with Martin Luther King. And nobody would say that they agreed with Stokely Carmichael. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. So, you know, uh, I, I, I can very well see that, that uh, you were pretty much um, unique uh, in your community and would have been unique in a lot of communities. Well, there were there were a few of few of us. I don't I don't you know I, mean, I certainly wasn't the only person. Uh, there were but there there were not large numbers of people who were active in terms of uh, actively resisting or or uh, freedom fighting or whatever you want to call it. Uh, but there were 
support, they were not opposed to to what you were doing. It's just that they didn't want to stick their necks out, you know, in terms of Absolutely. Uh, uh, jobs and that kind of thing. Uh, but we had, we had, it, it, I tell you, you know, my husband and I laugh all the time and say, if everybody who said that they were at the March on Washington or that they in, in this particular protest movement or they, mm-hmm. they were in a sit-down demonstration and so on, if if all of those people were were really there, you wouldn't have, you know, there wouldn't be room on the planet for all the ones mm-hmm. who said mm-hmm. they were there, but they were not, they were not there, you know. I know people People would be very surprised, or they wouldn't be surprised, but you don't hear it in the retelling of our history that many people supported Martin Luther King in private. And when they, when they um, publicly acknowledged him uh, and celebrated him, uh, they used terms like, he's so dignified and he's not angry. Right. Uh, <laughs> so they characterized him mistakenly, but at the same time, as opposed to people who felt they had to explain the anger and the straightforwardness of a Malcolm or a Stokely Carmichael uh, or a Mudasa Dada. Uh, I mean, it, it was an interesting, interesting time. But part of that in the South, I and I want to get your your response to this. Part of that in the South is because people realized the um, had understood the the reality of how dangerous uh, being part of either the civil rights movement or the Black Power movement or any movement of any kind out of the black uh, black uh, community was. Were you aware when you did you have concerns when you joined Core uh, and SNCC? Uh, actually, we I was never because I was in Core and uh, uh, a supporter of SNCC while I was in Core, but we we um, uh, I never encountered any kind of um, personal um, danger. Really, uh, uh-huh. it was. Um, Oh dear. Um, well, <laughs> you just have danger, to forgive me. You didn't I, have a lot of danger in the cities, but in small communities no. and in rural areas in the South, the danger was very. Serious. Oh, the danger! Oh, that's where the danger was. That's 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 uh, mm-hmm. that's why I felt that hey, I need to be doing something because I I don't have to uh, you know I, I I don't have to brave crowds of angry white people and so forth and here there are things that need to be done that I can do without uh without uh having my life threatened. I, I never you know, it wasn't like in the deep south with those uh kids who really were on the front lines. Um I didn't do mm-hmm. that I didn't have those kinds of experiences. Mine and my role in throughout the uh the the years in various movements and organizations and activities and so forth has been more or less a um um well, I did some organizing and so forth, but it was as much an observer as a participant. I would be the one who would keep the records and and uh, uh, make sure that uh, you know we got press for certain activities and coordinated uh, with other organizations and so forth. So 
uh, I did a lot of uh, communications, I guess you call it, and that's mm-hmm, that's, uh, mm-hmm. that's yeah. You did a lot of communications, housewife and mother of three, <laughs> to get yourself under the surveillance of the federal bureau of investigation. <laughs> if you're Again, just you, when you, it, it's so funny because when you look, when I look at my FBI files. All of the things that well that are so much is redacted you you can't really get a coherent picture of what uh what they're trying to say but um when I see that the names of all of these organizations that that uh they have me associated with now some of them I belong to or attended meetings or conferences where representatives of those organizations were present, but they have me affiliated with every organization that you can think of, every black power, black nationalist, pan-Africanist. <laughs> it, I mean, you know, I, I wish I had known some of, the, some of the people that they have me <laughs> associated oh, wow. with. But um, uh, it, it's, it was, you know, and, and at the time they just had uh, anybody who was trying to do anything in terms of uh, um, fighting oppression, um was was pinpointed as an enemy. I mean, in my FBI files, you, you they have little pages where you are labeled, uh, where everything is redacted, but you're labeled an agitator, rabble rouser. It it um, you know, and they move you from one category to the next. I guess yeah, depending next. on what yeah. they thought you were doing at the time. And so, in in um, uh, looking at the files, you can pretty much uh, tell you. You can't pinpoint, but you can pretty much tell who was the informer or, or because of, of what the, the subject matter was. You, you try to remember back to who was where and who what went on. Yeah. And, right, mm-hmm. and it, uh, yeah. you can see how the, their COINTEL pro, uh, uh, program worked in a way yeah. to make people distrust each other and, and uh, you know, always be suspicious of who, who that might be and so forth. And they did everything that they could to instigate instigate uh, uh, enmity between the, the different organizations and and so forth. So that's that's all reflected in my FBI, FBI yeah. file. And um, the 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 name of the book is a is not that I was actually I was on any wanted list, but just that <laughs> you were on the wanted list. <laughs> I was the press secretary for they a number of organizations and so forth that they wanted to uh, not be in existence. Yeah, we've got to take a break. Uh, thank you for being with us here tonight at our common ground. Our guest tonight at our common ground is. Florence L. Tate. She is a civil rights activist, a former journalist, and press secretary of the Congress for Racial Equality uh, here at Our Common Ground. We're getting her story and opening her file. And uh, one of the things that I really want all of you out there to understand is that there is the ability and the window for all of us to bring about change. I'm Janice Graham, and we'll be right back with Florence Tate. We're going to be talking with her about some of the changes that she was able to activate and initiate, and we'll also be talking to her about her activities in partisan politics in black America. We'll be right back. 
And you knew you were on a roll when you left Washington that day. You knew something had happened. We brought an army down here, and America was going to have to change. God damn it, America was going to have to change, and you knew it. And unlike all the other bullcrap that I had participated in my life, where you could sit up endlessly as we did in college and do your sophomoreish philosophy, and then you get out of the dorm at 6.30 in the morning and nothing changed. When you came home from Washington, it started to change. This is our common ground. Witnesses on the bridge. They were called and they came to lift up a people and to change a nation. Our common ground, broadcasting brave, bold, and black. Each Saturday, 10 p.m., speaking truth to power and ourselves. And we thank you for being with us here at Our Common Ground. Tonight, our guest, and we are so pleased to have her, the elder warrior, Florence L. Tate, civil rights activist, journalist, and press secretary. Something that we will never forget is those who came to change a nation and lift up the people. Uh, Elder Tate, thank you so much so much for uh, joining us tonight. I have been looking forward to this. It's been over a year that I've been eyeing trying to do this series of shows about people who have put their lives on hold to do the work that has to be done. And you say in your memoir, um, FBI's Most Wanted Press Secretary, that the work has not been done. Let me ask you and get your impressions. Let me say, in the till, where were you and how did you respond? I was in um, Cleveland. I had uh, recently moved from Memphis to Cleveland, uh, seeking better opportunities, job opportunities, and so forth. Anyway, I was living in Cleveland, and uh, uh, when I read the I think I read the news it wasn't on television or anything. I read the newspaper and I could uh since having grown up in Memphis, which was, you know, right across the line from Mississippi, I I knew the sort of the terrain and and uh and what uh, you know, I I knew those people. Those those were people that I had grown up uh, with or around or knowing about, and people like uh, the ones who who murdered Emmett Till. So that was a you know it was a joke. Like uh, uh, even though I was away from that part of the country, I, you know you just had a, a sense of of dread and fear and horror at, because you you could just imagine what um, what had had transpired and how it had transpired and you know black people were mad i mean you were really mad and uh it i think it was kind of a, the beginning of everybody thinking uh well all the socially conscious people thinking we've got to do something this you know we we can't just uh uh let ourselves let this continue and I don't remember doing anything or saying it, but I do re- distinctly remember the the when I learned about it, and um, uh-huh. you know. Uh huh. And I and was, you were a teenager back. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure the Emmett Till thing took you back to 
your childhood recollection of your father reading about your own uncle who had been lynched by motor Absolutely, vehicles. my my cousin. Yes, absolutely. I de- identified with that very much so because that was something that I had, uh, you know, was, was uh-huh. a familiar kind of story to me of yeah. of uh, uh, meeting, you know, uh, a young black man meeting his uh, death at the hands of white racists. Yes, that mm-hmm. that was uh, yeah that was something you know, Marge, that uh, personally struck a chord. We talk on this show a lot about injuries that we have carried from one generation to the other. And when I think about Emmett Till, I was there, I was young, but it was the it was a it, this, that particular event was when I learned that children die. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Had never thought about it, um, but it was. It was then that I learned that children die, and I had had an uncle who had been lynched in health, uh, up in Rosewood, Florida, in uh, delivering lumber to the victims of the Rosewood uh, Holocaust, I mm-hmm. call it. Mm-hmm. And on his way back to South Florida, he was caught by um, either members of the Klan or members of that community. My grandfather had sent him to deliver lumber so that people could start rebuilding. And um, he was was lynched there. And many people, when they hear us talk about injury, think that we're talking uh, a history that is so far away. But you and I, I mean, you are my elder, but you and I and many in our generations still can tell these stories. Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, like first-person stories, you know, either you know somebody or you know of somebody that, that something like that has happened to. It's it's not a, it's not ancient history. It's something that, uh, you know, it's it's uh, all too, exactly. too uh, recent. And, um, you know, the, the remnants are still around out there. But right. You know, and 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 people uh, misread history as well, because you talk about segregation as a young woman having been dispelled, uh, the Jim Crow laws, uh, the Brown versus Board of Education. You understood those, but uh, and I was ve- I, I was very young, uh, and it wasn't. Our schools in my community weren't desegregated until I did it as a sophomore in high school. Mm -hmm. So we have to put all of this in context. Now, let's talk about some more of your history. You have such a vast history. You uh, worked with CORE in uh, integrating some major companies like Bell Telephone, which was the uh, predecedent uh, for those of you who are listening to AT&T and global industries working with both SNCC and CORE to do that. Uh, <clears throat> when you began to uh, get involved in that kind of activity, how was that organized? Actually, it was... It was uh my working at those places or integrating those places 
was before uh, I got involved in any uh, structured, let's say, civil rights uh-huh. activities. Uh, there in in uh, there were places, of course, that didn't hire black people at all, and that was most places. You know, you could get jobs in a factory, perhaps in uh, General Motors and so forth in Dayton. But uh, any of the the stores, uh, the big white firms and so forth, it was it was that just was not. You know, they just didn't hire black people except for mm-hmm. many of labor jobs. But um, for some reason, the um, the Urban League we don't you know we don't give the Urban League enough credit for the kinds of things that it it does and has done. Uh, they're not the, the same kinds of things. They're not you know a militant organization, but they made great contributions. So at any rate, the Urban League was involved in trying to uh, place get. That, uh, uh, to to break down some uh, uh, employment barriers to get uh, black people in at certain positions on certain places, and the telephone company was one of them because they just you know was all really white. You didn't there was they had no black mm-hmm. anything, mm-hmm. and uh, the the Urban League through their negotiations with the uh, with the owners or uh, uh, rulers or whatever they were of uh, the telephone <laughs> company. <laughs> uh, Ooh, got an ag- yeah, right. <laughs> they got an agreement that they would uh, sc- find someone, screen someone who would be sure to be able to fit in to the company and not upset the apple mm-hmm. cart or whatever. And um, so I can't remember exactly how it got to me, but but uh, I was. Uh, selected as a person who to be interviewed by the telephone company and and possibly hired and I would be their first black um, uh, person who worked as a customer service representative for the telephone company mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you would you you know you you would have thought that you were going to have to teach at some major university to to in order to get this job the the kinds of questions that they asked and so forth by the way it was still not that long after the McCarthy era and everybody had to sign a pledge that you were not uh now and had not ever been a communist so that was part of the application mm-hmm. with telephone mm-hmm. anyway i got the well, job was, uh-huh mm-hmm. no i i got the the job there and uh you know, I set the, I showed them that black people could could work with white people without uh, destroying the place, is what, and, and it opened it up. <laughs> and they opened up to you know to more open up more jobs for black people. Uh-huh. And the same uh-huh. kind of thing happened with the with the Globe Industries. It was was also a um, you know a, a plant actually a factory. But they had an engineering department, and they needed secretaries and so forth. So uh, I was screened to be the person to see if I could, uh, you know, could get a job there. And uh, that worked out, and that opened up to other folks after that. So mm-hmm. it was, um, you know, nothing that was uh, not not as a part of, of uh, the civil rights movement. This was kind of pre Pre the uh, yeah, mm-hmm. but it still it still was some 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 kind of political action going on in the community that initiated that. Yeah. Because uh, for for our listeners, one of the things 
we I want to point out is that when when you went into Bell Telephone, Bell Telephone had no affirmative action program, had no, no. equal employment opportunity program. But what happened for the next 15 to 20 years was very important because as they added more and more and people began uh, to uh, uh, hire more black people, uh, when we got into the era where there was the, the um, Title VII, which is the uh, Equal Employment Opportunity Act, people were already in place, and mm-hmm. that made a difference because by 1966, 67, 68, black people were, were able to come out of high school and go be telephone operators. Right. And that set up a whole new segment within the black middle class because then people were in pension programs, they were in savings programs, they were in... Uh, uh, training in, in, in the pipelines or other training opportunities, and it made a world of difference uh, for black people in employment. So it becomes very important. Let me ask you about uh, you were uh, involved with close confidences with some very key activist figures such as Stokely Carmichael and H. Rap Brown, uh, and I also want to talk about your experiences. Tell us about your experiences with um, Marion Berry and his first um, uh, campaign to become the first black mayor of Washington, D.C., and the Jesse Jackson, um, which will be a historic campaign for president in 1984. Okay, where do you want me to start? <laughs> let's let's start with how how okay housewife with three children with a job at Bell Telephone. <laughs> how in the world did you get involved with uh, being a close confidant of Stokely Carmichael and H. Rap Brown? How did that happen? Okay, after I became active in the uh, civil rights movement in Dayton with the uh, with the Congress of Racial Equality, then you uh, you know it, it, your consciousness is, is expanded and you you know what other people are doing in other places and you meet people and and um, uh, I'm just trying to think directly of uh, okay the Dayton Alliance for Racial Equality. Uh, I'm try- oh, the the uh, when Stokely after Stokely first you know issued the cry for Black Power and it was in the paper and he was a very controversial figure and so forth. The um, the Unitarian Church that we sometimes attended there in in Dayton it invited him to be a speaker at uh, the church one Sunday, and uh, although we didn't belong to that church, the pastor there knew us and let us know that, uh, you know, Stokely was coming to speak, and it was a time when, you know, people were very excited about black power and and these young people in the South and what they were doing. And um, so we went to to hear Stokely's speech at the the church, and... uh, he was traveling with uh, with a friend and and uh, co-worker Ivanhoe Donaldson, 
and uh, they had indicated, Stokely had indicated to the pastor that if they were going to spend the night, I think, before they went on to the next the next speaking engagement, and they wanted to stay with the black family. So uh, the pastor had asked us if we would host them, and of course we, you know, we were delighted to do so. So um, now I was, uh, we were both working with, uh, by that time, the Dayton Alliance for Racial Equality, Charles and I, my husband and I, and uh, we were, you know, working on integrating housing and integrating the schools and uh, integrating the swimming pools. All of this was <laughs> still segregated in Ohio in mm-hmm. the that was. In the in the mid mid sixties, and um, uh, so uh, Stokely that night uh, we invited people over, other people in the organizations that we were working with, and some other people on the job or somewhere, and invited a number of people, and we talked all night about what Black Power was, or what you know what uh, what we were doing, and and what. he thought that we should try to do and how to do it. We, we just talked all night. And by the time, you know, Stokely and Ivanhoe left, we were converts to black power. We did not want to do any more trying to integrate public housing. Or we wanted black uh-huh. power. We wanted to determine, you know, for ourselves and and not, uh, not have other people uh, uh, trying to, tell us what it was that we should want and what we should do and what that kind of thing but that we would be self-determining and and that's the point at which I made contact with the uh with the young people in uh in SNCC and from then on uh, you know, I was there as a supporter, fundraiser, coordinator, uh Communicator, mother hen, that kind of thing. So that's that's my uh, association with SNCC. I was never a SNCC activist, just a SNCC in uh, a campus supporter. advisor, yeah, supporter and uh, uh, sort of a coordinator uh, for them on the campuses around uh, Dayton. It would be Central State, or uh, Antioch, Wilberforce, that kind of thing, with the young black mm-hmm. student uh, uh, student leaders and so forth on campus. And um, that is how I met Stokely and then began to meet uh, uh, a number of the other um, SNCC activists. Leaders of the the Black Power Mm -hmm. Movement. Right, Mm -hmm. right. Now, how did you get involved in the the Marion Berry Berry, uh, campaign? Okay, Marion, of course, was, uh, in fact, he was the first chairman of SNCC. But Marion was someone that I had known for, uh, known of and then had known personally for some time. I'm trying to remember when I first met Marion, but it was it was long before he was running for mayor. As a matter of fact, he had not yet even run for city council. He was the uh, uh, he had founded an organization called Pride, which dealt with finding jobs uh, for ex-offenders, young black ex-offenders, and that's that's. Uh, when I first met him, I think it was when he was director of Pride, although I knew that he had been a SNCC member and so forth. And uh, when when he went into politics, um, when he okay, he was elected to school board first, and then he ran for city council and made you know good at that, and made got more and more people interested in in him and his work 
And um, uh, so the next thing he did was uh, he ran for city council, and then he he won that, and he served there and did well, and get you know his name got bigger and bigger in terms of uh-huh. uh, work that he was actually doing. And he decided that he was going to run for mayor. And uh, I mean, I know in retrospect he had decided that he was going to run for mayor. So it was a very bold, brash thing for him to do because there were people ahead of him in the pipeline, so to speak, <laughs> who would who would uh, run for mayor, who would um, challenge the sitting mayor to to run, who was an appointed mayor, by the way, to to run uh, uh, for mayor. And he was it was the um, uh, the existing mayor. The uh, rather the sitting mayor, the um, chairman of the city council, who was also president of the Urban League, and a very uh, uh, prominent person in the community, and Marion, who who um, uh, was not expected to to make a good showing at all against these more established figures and so forth, but uh, he decided that you know he was going to go for it. And um, because I had by that time had reputation of being this person who was a good press relations person and who could um, uh, could write and, you know, I couldn't speak, by the way, but I could write. And um, they they needed someone to be the press secretary for the campaign. So Ivanhoe, whom I had known for a long time by that time, uh, asked me if I would uh, be press secretary for the campaign. I, uh, yes, you know, of course. I uh-huh. mean, they, they were people that I knew and were doing stuff that I supported and so forth. So I um, agreed to be press secretary. And at the time, Marion, it was not thought that Marion had any chance of, of winning. And we we worked as though he, you know, he was going to be the mayor, and it uh, yeah. he got more and more support. And when the night of the um, uh, when the election returns came in, he, he had won, and nobody had expected it. It was you know a third and a third and it a third. Was but he won, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was it was one of the most I mean one of the highlights of my <laughs> activist career to uh, uh-huh, the night uh-huh. that that Marion won. As a matter of fact, he was not expected to win, and so we had a um, uh, you know the, the the different campaigns would have the would would secure a place for the uh, uh, to watch the election returns and to have a party afterwards and so forth. So we had the smallest smallest little. Hotel. The the other two had big hotels downtown, and they were waiting, and you know, with bands and so forth and so on. After returns started coming in, and they were piling up for Marion, uh, people from the other campaigns came to the little hotel. It was the Howard University's hotel, it was a Rumbey House, a little yes. hotel over there on George yeah. Avenue. They couldn't even fit in there. There were so many people piling in to see this who who this new mayor who was going to be this new mayor so anyway it was it was a very exciting time yeah yeah as a matter of fact uh maybe about uh 18 years ago i was working for a major corporation and required everybody that had to travel into washington dc to stay at the howard inn (laughs) (laughs) i love that and people would say what is it and i say it's the howard inn and it's historic, and if you haven't if you haven't stayed there, 
then you've got a treat coming. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Let's talk about um, your your memoirs that's coming up. Uh, oh, let, let me speak that. again. I don't know if I'll have another opportunity to do so, but let me just uh, speak to the whole thing about Marion. People who um, uh, only know him from, you know, the time that he was the on recent, television yeah. smoking crack, that uh so that that's that's their picture of Marion Barry. But people who who have known Marion from the beginning of his career and his political life know that that he is he did so much for so many people in in terms of the youth and uh the senior citizens and the Latinos and the gays and the art community. Everybody can tell you stories of what Marion Barry, mm-hmm. how Marion Barry helped or supported or made possible or uh, opened the way, paved the way for. He, uh, his contributions are, are just too numerous to try to itemize. Exactly. But he, he's exactly. much more than the fact, person who is who, who gave into for his. the incident that Marion Barry was a glorious icon of of black political action. You need Indeed. to really understand. I was a college student, and we supported the black student uh, organization in, in the city of Boston, supported Marion Barry, and we traveled to one of his campaign activities just to do the leafleting and all that stuff that needed to be done. And I was just so inspired by this handsome black man who dared to 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 challenge the system. Oh Marion Marion is bodacious. He will challenge. Yes. He will stand up. Yes. He will he will speak out. He that you know, it it's uh he he's uh in in some ways he to me he's like a a metaphor for the black community. You can you know, he just will not give up. If there's something Absolutely. that he believes in that he wants to do or get done, he will just keep going. You knock him down, he'll just get up and keep going. As though, and he does the same way with illness. <laughs> he is, he has yes. he yes. suffered all kinds of you know bad health problems, but nothing keeps him down. He's irrepressible. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. he's like black and, people. You just keep getting up. And I, I think that we can also say that about uh, Jesse Jackson. And it is important for people to really study the history, to uh, to get intimate with the history of these people who we sometimes now marginalize and minimize because the corporate media decided that they were enemies of the nation. And then, and to be to be fair, you know, people have their uh, 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 human flaws and failings and so forth. And and yes, that that uh, you know, the both of the people that we're talking about yeah. have succumbed to to things that you wish, hey, that that they had stayed away from. That's right. But uh, that's right. They're human, and it does not does not obliterate what they ha- what their contributions have been. You don't uh you know, you recognize that you may not like them, you may not like what they did or what the- but you have to recognize that they made valuable contributions and not just judge them based solely on uh their their giving in to their demons in some way. 
Absolutely. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. I'm Janice Graham, and I'm going to be listening for you taking your calls with our guest tonight, Florence Tate. She is a elder sister warrior, a civil rights activist, a journalist, and she was the press secretary uh, to the black nation and for that was put under severe uh, surveillance by the Federal Bureau of Investigation by way of your tax dollars. We're going to take a break, and I see that our boards are lighting up when we come back. We're going to talk about the FBI's most wanted press secretary, the memoirs of Florence Tate, and we're going to talk about her impressions of the first African-American president and his leadership in this country. We'll be right back. You stay tuned. And for those of you who are listening who would like to join us in our chat room, it's blogtalkradio.com backslash, that's to the right, OCG. I'm Janice Grant, and we'll be right back. They heard the call, and they came. Witnesses from the bridge. Black Warriors who came to lift up a people. Tuned in to Our Common Ground, our special segment, Witnesses on the Bridge. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you.
declare real, raw, and right now. It's the I Declare Show. Hi, this is Janice Graham suggesting to you that your Monday through Friday talk destination must be I Declare on Blog Talk Radio with India Declare. Monday through Friday, 11 a.m. Oh, no, honey, we can't put in, we can't, oh, my gosh, we can't have any expectations of clean air. Who are we, the American people, to want, I don't know, some clean air and some clean water? God forbid. Oh, let's see, anti-education, Pell Grant, screw it. If you can't afford to get in, you ain't getting in. That's the uh, Repub motto. And, of course, the anti-woman. Small government, small government, small government, vote for me. Small government, small government, small government, vote for me. I don't want the government involved in anything unless you have a uterus. If you have a uterus, Bonnie, we are, look, now, you tell me, that does not seem to be in favor of the American worker. We have seen the aggressive assault and attack on labor in this country. Clearly, there is a degradation of uh, the standard of living in this country. I I think it is just flat out uh, undeniable. People are uh, learning to live with less, uh, on less, and uh, uh, and it's tragic. The poverty numbers are uh, through the roof. Come join India Declare, bringing it real raw and right now. India Declare, real, raw, and right now. common ground. Witnesses on the bridge. They came when they were called to change a nation and raise up a people. Witnesses from the bridge. Broadcasting bold, brave, and black. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Thank you for joining us tonight. Until the killing of black men, black mother's son, is as important as the killing of white men, white mother's son. We who believe in freedom cannot And thank you for being with us here tonight at Our Common Ground in our first installment of Witnesses from the Bridge, looking at those who heed the call of a people in struggle and need for upliftment and support. And Florence Tate is our guest tonight. She is a civil rights activist, journalist, and has been in the struggle 
since the 1940s, folks. She was a mother and housewife who decided that she had the ability to change the nation. And in fact, she did in her work over these many years and in her memoirs that's coming up, and we're going to be talking about them right now. Uh, FBI's most wanted press secretary, she says that the work is still not done. Thank you so much, uh, Ms. Florence Tate, for being with us tonight. This has been so enriching, and it's such an honor for me to be able to have this conversation with you. For those of you who are calling in and want to talk with Florence Tate, we are going to take your calls. But before we do that, we're going to be joined by her editor of her memoirs. Uh, Jake Ann Jones is with us now uh, talking about the memoirs. Welcome, Ms. Jones, and thank you for being at Our Common Ground. Hi. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's talk about, Florence, uh, when you decided to do your your memoirs, and what you what are you sharing other than your such rich uh and important and critical history uh with us actually um uh janice the um uh i had have thought for a long time about um about doing my memoir the um but the thing that really made me sit down to try to start doing that was uh my children and grandchildren have have uh particularly two of them my oldest son and my oldest grandson have said to me grandmother why don't mom or grandmother why don't you write about what about your life and i said well there's there's nothing you know about my life there's nothing to really write about there's not much to tell that you don't know no we want to know everything we want to know mm-hmm. and my my son who is a writer himself said you i want you to just write it well just write it for us i want to know who you are so we'll know who we are and that was a challenge to me. And I thought for a year I would start, you know, get a bunch of journals and start writing on And I could just never make myself go through, you know, my whole life has been long, and I could never do it. And finally, uh, a couple of summers ago, uh, my son was visiting, and a friend of his who is a writer was, it turned out to be Miss Jake Ann Jones, who came uh, down from Tampa, I live in Sarasota, came down from Tampa, and we were sitting around and uh, talking about, you know, this whole business about writing my memoir. I can't remember exactly how it went, but she she will remember. But in any case, um, it turned out that she was a writer and that she it was something, a project that she would like to take on. So I said, well, if I could get somebody to do it, with and for me, then I'll, I can tell the story and and we can get it done. But uh-huh. I will just not. Uh, I, I I have shown that I would just. Not, I've started too many times that I was just not going to do it. So I've got uh, Jake Ann, who is just wonderful, a great writer, friend, confidant. It, it's just been you know she's like a another child of mine now. So anyway, Jake Ann, what's it been like? <laughs> What's, are you asking me or asking her? 
It's, it's Jay Jan. I'm asking Jay Jan what's oh, this oh, been okay. like. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's amazing. You know, I she's she's an incredible woman and she's very inspiring. Um, you know, I indeed she I, is. I I can't even you know I, it, it, her, the things that she's done, um, the experiences that she's had. The people whose lives she's touched, as I've been interviewing, you know, some of the people who um, talk in the book, you know, they can't say enough about the kind of of person that she was outside of not just her politics, but just her loving, warm person, you know, and all that she Uh gave these young people who, you know, came through her doors um, during the SNCC years. It's um it's it's pretty amazing to hear people talk about her. Well, I would think given her given what I know what her, of her story that to be able to read her entire memoirs uh that Florence is just going to be living with us for always. I am looking forward. When can we expect that the memoirs will be completed and in publication? I have Good I, I still have a lot of material. You know, we just have so many hours of tape, and really amazing people have contributed to that process. So, uh-huh. you know, we have we have a, a bit more to do. Um, but I'm very much hoping that, you know, within the year, we will be able to get, um, first of all, you know, we, we're trying we to decide, like, <laughs> Yeah, how to go about getting a publisher in this climate because we've heard a lot about the kinds of the way the publishing industry has changed in terms of what kind of um, books they're looking to publish. And so we're trying to kind of be savvy about it and try to figure mm-hmm. out how, how to approach the industry, you know, how to tell the story. And yeah, yeah, yeah. We have a little bit of I'm I'm, of I'm hoping that uh somehow and Aaliyah uh bundles who has been on the show a couple of times, uh as well as uh Dr. Frank Smith at the National uh African American Museum in Washington and I have been talking to people about how we could start our own publishing industry because the black uh publishing uh black books are selling. Uh, and it, they're selling in a different kind of way than than the publishers have used traditionally. And mm-hmm. um, you know, and I, I I can very well see Florence's book sitting in the in the bookstores in the National uh, Civil Rights Movement uh, store and at the Martin Luther King Monument store and at right. the Martin. Right. I mean. I, I I just see it that way. I mean, that's just mm-hmm. you know I I'm one of those people with an idea a minute. So, <laughs> so I'm really looking forward to it. And 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 Jake Ann, I don't know, uh, you know, uh, I don't know you personally, but I'm just enamored at someone who's able to walk this particular part of Florence Tate's journey with uh, with her because it must be just fantastic, awesome to be able to do yeah. that. I mean, yeah. I've only known her for, what, a Florence about 
uh, five years that we have been uh, talking on the Internet through Facebook. But right. she is just an awesome woman that yeah. if ever yeah. I go to Sarasota, <laughs> you know, yeah. so it, it must be just a very unique kind of experience to be able to, to live her life with her. Well, let, let, me, let me interject this. It's uh, it's wonderful working with Jake Ann because she is of, of the age that um, uh, she knows a, a lot about of uh, you know history, the things that happen, and so forth. But to in talking with her, I'm able to to uh, bring some personal experiences to to light uh, that that kind of highlight the kinds of things uh-huh. that you read about in history books, but here you're talking back and forth with someone who who uh, lived there and, and who was a witness or a participant in some of the things. Uh-huh. And uh, uh, she has, you know, stuff that I just take for granted that, you know, everybody, this is nothing, everybody knows this and so forth, and she'll say, oh, really? <laughs> and will give me a chance <laughs> to talk more about it or even reflect on things that I had just pushed in the background. So uh-huh. it's it's an interesting process. It really is. I just love working with her. Jake Ann, I am certainly going to be calling on you when this book hits the hits the hits the public uh, to have you back and just talk about that particular experience of being the editor for Florence Pate, the FBI's okay. most wanted press secretary. And thank you okay. so much for joining us tonight. And what okay, a pleasure it is to meet you. Okay, okay. we we just talked with Jake Ann. Jones, who is the editor of uh, Florence Tate's book that's going to be coming to us this year. But, Florence, one of the things I want to to really talk to you about uh, is what your impressions about current racial events, the, 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 the political culture that we live in now, the uh, experience of racial demonization under which the first black president uh, was elected in his first term and now in his second term, um, and and what your impressions of his administration are. Well, first of all, let me say, like every every other black person practically in the country, I was just thrilled uh and as as a person from my era to you know growing up through segregation discrimination jim crow all of that it it was just it was uh an impossible dream so so i did everything that i could from where i was and, and you know all things considered to help get him elected uh you know i worked a little campaign the phone bank and uh voter registration and had a fundraiser and donated and all of that stuff. So I participated in, at, at the level at which I could, I'd say. And uh, I was just, just thrilled that the, um, you know, that he was elected. And uh, it's been um, dismaying, to say the least, to, to see how he has been thwarted at every turn in terms of stuff that he uh, tried to do. So, so it uh it 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 uh after the initial elation at his being elected then i just more and more think about the um 
the fact that he was elected, but the, the forces that uh, are opposed to him, which would be the other 50% that didn't vote for him for the most part, um, are just determined that he will not uh, govern. He just, they, they whatever he, and he, he's been so, it's, seemingly trusting and and uh willing to uh uh you know not not uh uh well willing to compromise and do whatever it had to be done to get along and try to you know move his agenda along but realizing that he had to make some compromises and so forth but these people that's not good enough for them they want the whole thing they want to uh it won't the, the Tea Party people and the Republicans together, the, this Tea Party Republicans, uh, evidently would like to see us all the way back to slavery. They want to take away all of the the things that we worked for, worked and struggled to to achieve, and and finally, you know, you get to this point and you think things have have gotten to a little plateau and you can rest a while. No. When you accomplish one thing, you know, you get uh, uh, affirmative action, then they start pulling it back. You get equal employment opportunity, they start pulling it back. Uh, now they're, they're trying to pull back the voting rights. So it's uh, it, it's it, the, the the climate is such that uh, it, it's a it's a civil war going on in the country. Really, it's it's uh, uh, you know it's not. Um, not with bullets or anything, not at this point, but uh, half of the country is, is just determined that, that uh, black people will go no further and, and, and go back as far as you can be pushed back. So mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't have, uh, I'm, I'm very pessimistic about uh, uh, what's, what the possibilities are for Black progress, further black progress in the country. It, it uh, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's the forces are, are there that are that are evidently spending day and night thinking of how what we can do, what can we do to um, keep blacks from uh, uh, attaining true equality in in the country. So, in terms and what I think about him, I think he's doing. You know, he he does the the best that he can. Now, I have not been um, under the circumstances. I have not been pleased that that he has not felt that he could. He must think about it, but that he could do anything that could be loosely interpreted as benefiting black people. Now, I know there are things that he does that uh, you know benefit all of the people and so forth, and that we're part of all of that people, but. Certain constituencies, in fact, all of the Democratic constituencies, the base constituencies, have been able to get some kind of special attention for their most pressing needs. But uh, black people, you know, well, he's the president of all the people. Yeah, he's the president of all the people, but we're part of the people, too. <laughs> and I think as any politician, you know, will will play to his base. And we are so... Uh, uh, the Democrats are so secure in our vote that they don't, we're not even thought of. You just take for granted the base is there, and then you try to do whatever else you need to do to attract other other uh, constituencies. But uh, mm -hmm. I've not been I've not been real pleased that that he has not uh, paid special attention 
before to the just uh, um, un um, I can't think of the word, but just inordinate amount of unemployment in the black community. How it, how uh, disparate it, it is. Uh, from yeah, there's there's joblessness, but the black unemployment is just doubly, triply high, and particularly among young black men. And the other thing <laughs> regarding something that I would would hope that he would uh, pay special attention to. I know he can't make wave a wand and make this happen and so forth, but just that the the rate of incarceration of young black males is just. Uh, it's frightening. It's genocidal. I mean, you 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 remove the young black males from the population. Well, you know, hey, what what what's supposed to happen? There's no, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's the future of the race. And mm-hmm. and I would just uh, I would like to see him pay some special attention to that problem, and you know, have some kind of. Uh, national campaign to do whatever, pull experts together, but work on this, pay attention to it. It's a huge problem. And I would hope that that would be something that he would not uh, uh, be shy about doing. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't don't expect him to work in the miracles, but um, those are just things that I have thought about during during his past four years. And I was hoping... Mm-hmm. And what you're saying is the urgency of the socioeconomic issues facing black America that any president right. ought to specifically address those issues and would. Right. Um, it, he, he would, uh, uh, it, it, if, there, if there were another Democratic president, we would have been all over him. In fact, he would he would just know that he had to pay special attention to this particular problem that this that part of my constituency is having, not as opposed to doing for something for somebody else, but to be included. Your problems included, and and you need special attention in this way, and we'll uh, you know we'll jump on that. We'll do what we yeah. can about that. And uh, I just feel that he has understandably uh, shied. Uh, uh, away from you know being thought of as doing anything special for black people, I don't want anything special. I just want you know the same the same kind of attention that you pay to other constituents who have particular problems than just uh, uh, concerns, and just pay that kind of attention to me. Put me in the hopper, you know. Don't uh-huh. just take let me, me for granted. Let me ask you about black political mm-hmm. uh, and community leadership. What are your thoughts? about where we are on that front. Um, uh, Specifically, my question has to do with why there is so little specific community development and community organizing that's going on in our community as opposed to uh, the kind of activity that was happening in the 1960s, 1970s. Well, I think that after we achieved a certain amount of, uh, you know, a desegregation, equal employment opportunities and so forth, we just kind of, uh, you know, the acuteness of the problem just went away and we just uh, relaxed and relapsed into just uh, uh, inactivity <laughs> and mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, didn't keep moving forward. We have to, we... Our situation and our history is such that we can't we can't rest on you know when when 
you achieve something, you have to you have to be sure that that it's maintained. I mean, you you have to be vigilant. You have to, and and as other people say, you don't forget. They want us to forget our history. Just forget this, and why are you still thinking about that? And that was a long time ago, and I didn't have anything to do with it, and blah blah blah. Hey, we can't afford to forget because we know what happens to us. We, we mm-hmm. it's it's uh, uh, universal and and historic, and we just have to stay on the case. But we have we we haven't done that, and uh, you know, there's been no there's no agitation and no no organizing and uh, no development that should have been going on. I and as far as as uh uh leaders, I we just uh there there's no maybe the times and circumstances don't call for big leaders ahead of this, ahead of that, ahead of the other. Maybe we just need to think in terms of community leaders and community development and so forth. I I don't know. I don't have any answers for it. I just know that uh, mm-hmm. you know it's it's uh, it's lacking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, the, even the articulation of a cogent agenda, uh, we seem to get distracted so easily. And one of the things I loved about your generation of activists is that you were laser sharp on where we needed to be focusing our energy and unapologetic about the ruckus that you would cause in doing that. I'm still so very impressed by that. Well, I, I think that the times, uh, you know, that the, the, it it's not a constant kind of thing, but these movements come along, ebb and flow, and I think that there will come a time again when, uh, you know, black people will be pushing forward like like yeah, uh, it happened yeah. in the 60s, so it just... Uh, like you know, I'm, we last I'm, that I'm, long. I, this week, I'm laser sharp on our, our Supreme Court. Uh, I'm calling for a movement, a revolution, a rebellion, a resistance to impeach um, uh, Justice Scalia. And I'm also one of the things that we need to do as American people is to require that the Supreme Court proceedings be televised. We pay for them, we pay for their services, and they should be televised. Just well, like I, the House of Representatives and the Senate. I feel like, I know you don't feel like, because I, I, I've, I've been reading you a long time now, but I feel like I'm running out of time. And <laughs> some of this stuff got to get done. It's just got to get done. Uh, well, this, this is this is uh, wait a minute. I'll lose this thought, but something that I <clears throat> thought about was discussing with my husband this afternoon is that uh, you know seeing a picture of of uh, Obama in the paper. I think yesterday or today, yesterday, where he just looked, he just looked whipped. Those people have just beating him around the ears. It was after this meeting that he had with Boehner and company up there, uh-huh. and, uh, where they just won't give, they won't give any, and they are determined that he will not be able to do anything, that, that he will not govern this country. They're just determined. So I said, you know, uh, 
he can't do this by himself. He, you know, he can speak and he can uh, arouse the crowds and he can whatever. But it's like it's just him. I know there are other people doing things, but you just, you know, it, it seems to be mainly on him. He needs some help. He need he, the the political yeah. advisors that he has, whoever they are. They are good at winning campaigns and so forth, but they don't give him the best political advice. Or I don't know. Maybe he doesn't take advice. I don't know. But he needs some seasoned people around him, a kitchen cabinet, a, a war cabinet, to try to come up with some kind of strategy for for uh, pushing back on uh, these people mm-hmm. who are determined to, that he won't govern. He's, he could mm-hmm. four more years of just constant, uh, you know, opposition to everything and anything that he does or that he proposes or suggests, then uh, there's got to be a strategy for for getting through this this time because they're they're not they're just not going to give they are going to they and they care no. little about whether what happens to the country that that's shown with this sequestration mess mess they don't care they it thought that they you know would uh, not uh, uh, go for because uh, of their concerns about the defense cuts and so forth they. Look, they don't care. They don't. Care. They are no. not. They're not patriots. They don't care about the country. They said the country. No, they don't. It, it's just to keep Obama from succeeding in in office and to keep black people in their place. That's that's their well, primary concern. Well, that's what they've been doing: keeping this black man in his place. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that. And I hate to say that, that he may be too young and that he may not be of the culture from which you come, and that is to resist, rebel, and look for revolution. Well, as yeah. president, <laughs> well, well there, I mean, there are a lot of ways to, in which to do that. Uh, but uh, I'm saying his he's not cultured. Oh, that's against the system. Yeah, yeah, I see. He's cultured to capitulate, cooperate, and collaborate, uh, not understanding that none of that is going to matter because he doesn't understand, in my opinion, to the degree that they view him as a black man. Yes, he does not uh, understand how race. I, I really believe that, Lauren. Oh, I, 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 I agree. <laughs> I agree. I, I agree. Lauren, I, hey, I hate to. It has been uh, such a wonderful conversation. And I, I just want you to, we've got some limited time. Uh, the show is coming to a close. But to give us some closing thoughts about how your life has informed your 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 sisterhood in this black nation? How my life has informed the sisterhood. Everything. How you have become this wonderful sister, elder sister. What has been the important thing? The important things have been um, the relationships that I've had with people or continue to have with people along the way 
particularly with young people. I've, I've um, uh, since I was young myself, I've, but I have uh, always maintained healthy relationships with a lot of young people. I I love young people. I just you know their ideas and and their energy. It it uh, helps keep me going. And and I. Um, I don't know. That's what that's one of the most enjoyable parts of my life. Uh communicating with and spending time with uh uh my sisters, you know. Mm-hmm. Those that are my age and and not many of those left. Those of my age and younger younger people. I I just uh I just um enjoy that a lot. And I I Guess by example of uh, nothing that I tried to do, but I've I've been um, a good wife, a good mother, a good uh, uh, friend, and that um, uh, people have have said. I mean, folks will say that. Oh, I just admire the way you have, and I I don't think of myself as doing anything, but just living my life. But apparently there there's some connection there that people feel that um, you know, the way I have been able to, to manage my my life uh is is something that they admire. So it's um I I forget what you asked me. <laughs> I, I know I know that your your beloved husband Charles has been one of the pillars Oh, absolutely, absolutely. He's more wonderful than, you know, than I give him credit for. I mean, he, he is. Anything that I have been able to do in any way that was beneficial to anybody, it was because I had his full support and love. And but anything that I wanted to do that... Um, uh, you know, say it, it cost any money or any kind of material support that I have needed to do anything that I thought I was would be beneficial for somebody else. He's been right there. There's no, 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 uh, you know, and it's only when you get older that you think about, hey, well, uh, how did I do that? <laughs> you know, uh-huh, it was uh-huh, because uh-huh. He, he's been supportive all, all yes, the way, yes. all the way. Well, we are certainly so honored to have had this time with you and so grateful. I am so grateful and thankful because you are the woman, one of the women who told me when I was 15, 14 years old and ran away to join SNCC and then they said I was too young, uh, who has motivated me, inspired me, and affirmed for me that Activism is worthy, has value, and that we can change a nation and that we can lift up our people one by one. So thank you so very much, Florence Tate. Well, thank you for inviting me on the program, Janice. Well, Godspeed to you and your lovely family. And I, I know that two hours uh, went by very fast, <laughs> but I hope that you will come back again, and I hope that this broadcast will be something for which we can share over and over so that people 
learn the lessons of those <coughs> who were witnesses on the bridge. And indeed you were and still are. Well, thank so you thank so you much. So and I've, much. I've really enjoyed spending this time with you. I really have. Thank you. And I'll, I'm going to put you on mute so you can listen to the, the, the rest of the broadcast. Okay. Just okay. a Very little good. time. That All was right. Florence L. Tate, and you should be looking for her memoir, where she recounts her life from days in the Jim Crow South to the 1984 Jesse Jackson presidential uh, bid to the pre- to the election of the first black president in America. She's a former civil rights activist, Dayton Daily News reporter, and press secretary for the historic 1984 Jesse Jackson campaign for president. And she has lived through seven decades of America in change. You've been listening to Our Common Ground. For those of you who didn't get a chance to call in, I apologize. Um, Join us uh, next week with our second installment of Witnesses from the Bridge with the executive director and founder of the Spirit Spirit House Project in Atlanta, Georgia, a former SNCC activist, Ruby Sales. She'll be with us next week. And um, all this this month in March, we are celebrating those who came to change a nation and to raise and uplift, to raise up a people. This has been Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham. Don't forget our fine broadcast pod, project product at TruthWorks Network. Soul of Fire with Dr. Matthew V. Johnson at 10 p.m. on Wednesdays. Commentaries on the Times with Playfell Benjamin on Thursdays at 10 p.m. And on Fridays, it's ALFO, the ALFO Show, Advanced Urban Progressive Political Talk Radio. It's all talk that matters. And we will hopefully see you at the India Declare Show, 11 a.m., each Monday through Friday right here on Blog Talk Radio, the I Declare Show. Thank you for being with us. Thanks to all the people who joined us in our chat room. We're just wonderful, glad to have our administrator back, Loga Michelle Odom, and we'll see you next week. Have a good week. Thank you for joining us on Our Common Ground tonight in our first installment of Witnesses from the Bridge. Deep thanks and gratitude to Sister Soldier Florence Tate, who was with us tonight. Join us next week with Ruby Sales, the executive director and founder of the Spirit House Project. She was a SNCC field worker and is a civil rights veteran. Doing community work still because the work is not done. On Witnesses from the Bridge. Join us each Saturday night, 10 p.m., speaking truth to power and ourselves. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you.